1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Adrian Hahn, the author of You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and share this episode with your friends. And now, back to the show. Warehouse workers pack boxes while a virtual dragon races across their screen. If they beat their colleagues, they get an award. If not, they can be fired. Uber presents exhausted drivers with challenges to keep them driving. China scores its citizens so they behave well, and games with in-app purchases Use achievements to empty your wallet. Points, badges, and leaderboards are creeping into every aspect of modern life. In You've Been Played, game designer Adrian Hahn is telling us how corporations, schools, and governments use games and gamification as tools for profit and cohesion. These are games that we often have no choice but to play, where losing has heavy penalties you've been played can be understood as an indictment of a tech-driven world that wants to convince us that misery is fun and a call to arms for anyone who hopes to preserve their dignity and autonomy. Adrian, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, of course, including your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now.
0: So, I am currently CEO uh, at a games company called Sixer Start, and we're best known for creating a smartphone fitness game called Zombies Run, which makes uh, running in the real world more exciting. And, um, I've been working in the games industry for about 14-15 years now, um, before that I was a, uh, I trained as a neuroscientist and experimental psychologist, so uh, lots of different things, uh, and of course I also write about games, I wrote this book and I've written, uh, I, I write a column for Edge. Um, my favorite game, uh, you know, I've, I've played a lot of games that I enjoy. Um, you know, really liked Civilization uh, when I was younger as a teenager. Uh, really liked um, Into the Breach, I think it was just a fantastic strategy game. The game that I'm playing right now is The Case of the Golden Idol, which is a kind of detective game, like a, a murder mystery in a way, um, which is similar if you played it to... A return of the din, which I think is fantastic. So that's what I'm up to right now.
1: Hmm, I see. Well, I learned about your latest book while reading the latest issue of Edge, the Edge magazine, the British gaming magazine. How did you come to write You Have Been Played then?
0: So, um, you know, I've been working uh, in gamification in, in the sense that I've been making games that uh, have a non-entertainment purpose, I suppose, um, for many years. You know, I've been working on Zombies Run for over 10 years now. And so Zombies Run is a very uh, successful example of gamification. People have talked about it a lot. Um, Although I don't really like the term. And honestly, when people say that what we do is gamification, I kind of, uh, I, I get a bit nervous because I think that most examples of gamification out there in the real world are just absolutely terrible um manipulative or or they just don't work and so um i I didn't really want to write this book for for many years um i just thought gamification would go away on its own eventually Uh, but actually in the last four or five years i noticed that it was becoming more and more common and that we're seeing it being deployed at scale in places like Amazon warehouses, Uber, you know, in, in lifestyle apps everywhere. And, um, it was interesting to me that, that people just were not really commenting on it that much. And I was curious as to why gamification, um, which I, I thought was not very effective in most cases was growing. And so that is why I read the book to try and map out why it was growing again. And, um, try and make people feel a little bit more skeptical about gamification in general.
1: Yeah. um, Well, I see. Let's let's have a look inside your book then. In the first chapter, you start by tracing out the technological and social factors that led to the rise of uh, gamification in the 21st century. As one of its beginnings, you mark the spread of the internet and the adaption of easy to use, real time web 2.0 technologies. But if I understand you correctly, that is only uh, one piece of the puzzle.
0: That's right. So, obviously, uh, you know, well, a a lot of people have asked, oh, haven't we had gamification for centuries? You know, surely it's not that new. We've used points and badges and and medals in the past, which is true. Um, Obviously, the, the word gamification, however, only really became popular uh, about 15 years ago. And that was when these uh, technologies were adopted that allowed it to be deployed at a, a much faster um, feedback loop and a much uh, wider scale. And so technology is one half of the answer. But the other half of the answer is basically the... Um, sort of cultural victory, uh, for want of a better term, of video games. So um, in kind of popular understanding, when video games were first, uh, you know, first launched in the 70s and 80s, um, they were kind of first seen as a bit of a frivolous distraction um, just, a, just kind of a silly hobby and then really in the 80s, 90s and 2000s We started seeing them being criticized a lot more by the press um, People saying that you know, if you play Doom, then you'll become a killer You know, if you play Grand Theft Auto, you'll become antisocial uh, It's just bad for you. And so there, there was this sort of cultural backlash against games, but actually I would argue that from the late 2000s onwards, there's been a kind of counter backlash And so you have a generation of people who played games as children and as teenagers in the 80s and 90s, and they know that they haven't all become killers uh, and and terrible people. And so they think, well, actually, um, my hobby is fine and uh, there's nothing wrong with it. But but I think a lot of people still kind of hold a grudge (laughs) against having their hobby um, demonized. And so, I think the pendulum has kind of swung the complete opposite direction, so that people now feel that games are not just neutral, but they're good. So you see a lot of headlines and see a lot of studies saying that games are good for you, and they effectively have no negative effects whatsoever, um, and they're good at good at um, making you, you know, make friends or increasing your intelligence or all that sort of thing, and so. Gamification is not the same as video games, but it is closely linked. And so my argument is that as um, video games have become uh, more praised within popular culture, so has gamification become um, more accepted
1: this particular consumer and lifestyle gamification you were just talking about is then uh, closely examined in chapter two. And this is where I found this one strong sentence that I actually would love to see printed on a hoodie or a t-shirt. And I quote here, gamification tells us that everything we find difficult or boring can be made easy. Please guide us through your thoughts here.
0: Well, so I think in our modern culture, um, and you know you can sort of think about what the roots of this are, people feel that they need to keep improving themselves right So they need to be, become more efficient. I, you know as an individual I should be improving my brand, I should becoming more fit, more intelligent learning skills, learning a new language, you know reading books. you know people have this long list of things that they feel they should be doing. And a lot of these things are quite hard to do. <laughs> Obviously, it's not easy to learn a new language or to, you know, uh, necessarily to become fit. And so, um, gamification has become this sort of motivational layer, or, or this sort of layer of um, uh, sort of con- not necessarily like in a bad way, but a behavioural control that where apps promise that, okay, if you want to learn a language, we can make this easier. We can make this uh, fun by turning it into a game. Now I realize that, of course, this is what my own game says it does, Zombies Run. Um, and I guess I would sort of make a distinction between different types of gamification here, where um, you see some, most forms of gamification will say, okay, well, uh, let's say you're trying to learn a new language. Um, it would give you one point for a correct answer and it gives you a, an achievement badge for 100 correct answers. Like that would be a pretty pretty traditional form of gamification. I would argue that that's actually not fun at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it, It's pretty basic. Um, now, if you were trying to, if, if you were playing, I don't know, uh, a live action role-playing game or role-playing game where you were discovering some new land and you had to learn it language you know gradually that could be more fun depending on the person so you know th- this is it has become a tool uh that both is attractive to consumers because they believe the gamification can work and it will make things more fun but it's also attractive to companies because they know they can use gamification to increase engagement and um increased profits uh, from from their apps. So people are oddly aligned in in accepting gamification in apps.
1: Yeah, and, and in the next chapter, you also show how gamification has amplified these exhausting technologically driven micromanagements of taxi and truck drivers or call center agents that began with actually Taylorism over a century ago. And since not every listener might be familiar with this specific term of Taylorism, maybe you could start a short dive into that chapter by explaining the similarities you have discovered.
0: Well, Taylorism began with Frederick Winslow Taylor um, back in the late 19th century. And uh, he was in America and he was interested in trying to effectively increase the productivity of factories. And so, um, and this is a very kind of brief description of what he did, but he he would go into factories with a stopwatch um, and just time how long it took workers to perform manual tasks. And he'd noticed that some people worked faster than others. And he was like, okay, well, if I just made everyone work equally fast and use the same motions and and, uh, perform in the same way as the fastest workers and we can increase uh, productivity. Um, and so I, I think this is called scientific management and, um, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, you know, from, from a basic point of view, of course, like that, there, there probably are better, you know, faster and slower practices, but what this, what Taylor did was try to be really systematic about measuring, uh, output and then, um, Rewarding or punishing workers based on their output, um, and that was that. Now that has happened in the past. Uh, it's not like it's a new thing, but it was it was sort of done more systematically and and sort of timed and adopted more widely than a lot of other um, mechanisms before then. And so gamification is similar to Taylorism in that uh, gamification of the workplace is similar to Taylorism. It depends on measuring workers' performance and output and rewarding and punishing uh, workers for working hard or working less hard. Um, but uh, unlike Taylorism, where your feedback might be you know, a letter uh, that you get or a report that you get every week or maybe every day, gamification in the workplace gives you constant feedback through... Uh, points and badges and progress bars um, all the time. And so there's a big difference between getting feedback constantly uh, on your handheld device or through headphones or on your computer screens than it is getting it at the end of the day. And of course, the other difference with gamification is that the feedback is not coming from an individual, uh, from your manager. It's coming from a game. So the game has become your manager. Um, and weirdly, people seem to be a bit more accepting um, of that feedback coming from a game. Maybe mm-hmm. because they're used to games being being fair or being being sort of, uh, um, you know, they, they think it's more fun. So yeah. that that's a parallel.
1: Actually, that's a really good point because yeah, I've never thought about it this way. The belief that a, a game. Has to be fair. So this this is really interesting. Hmm. You then put two case studies in your fourth chapter, and and thereby want to demonstrate, I guess, how to effectively gamify activities. An imaginary game about mopping and a very real game about running away from zombies. Um, Please tell us how and why did you select these two titles, and what did you learn?
0: Well. So, so the imaginary game about mopping. Um, someone asked me that question at a games conference many years ago. Uh, I think I was talking about Zombies Run, and I said, "I it kind of like as a joke, you know, how would you make it more interesting to mop the floor?" And I, I kind of got weirdly interested in that question um, yeah. because it, um, you know, like I, I used to do a lot of mopping, uh, and it's one of these activities that people know they should be doing, right? Uh, you know, you've got a dirty floor. You should probably go and clean the floor. But also, no one really likes doing it. You know, it's kind of dirtier and more messy than vacuuming. And so, it's a classic case where gamification would be quite interesting. Where someone knows they should be doing something, they they are motivated to do it, but they they are just they they need it to be a little bit more fun so they can be they can sort of get over that hump of starting it. And so, yeah. I started thinking about the technology um, that would be required and then the game that would be required to make mopping more fun. Now, of course, from a generic gamification point of view, you could just go and say, well, every time you mop <laughs> you know, the floor, you get 20 points, and uh, if you get 100 points, you, you level up. That's just not interesting. I mean, that, that doesn't make mopping any more fun, um, but it does give you, you some points. And so I thought, OK, well, what I want to do is try and make the act of mopping more fun. So if we remove all points, how can we make it so that when you're mopping, you're actually having fun? And so to cut a long story short, I thought, okay, well, what we want to do is really turn the mop into kind of like a game controller, or you want to turn your floor into a game board so that the game can be aware uh, of the cleanliness state of Mm -hmm. your floor. Because if it's just if it's just saying well we're going to give you like one point per minute of mopping you could just go and cheat right that's yeah. not interesting the, the game needs to know how clean your floor is and so I argue that actually in order to do this well you would need cameras looking at your floor or um, some kind of heads up display or augmented reality display which we don't have yet so. Um, the short answer is I don't think you can make mopping more fun until we have better technology. Yeah. Whereas running away from zombies, which is zombies run my own game, um, you know, I talk about how running again is an activity that a lot of people want to do, but they find it boring and, and painful. Um, and, and they said so they want it to be a bit more interesting. And so I talk about how, um. A lot of people already, even 10 years ago, ran with their phones and they ran with headphones, and so they were used to doing that, but uh, they, of course, when you're running, you can't really look at your screen of your phone. So you couldn't really do something like Pokemon Go if you're running around in the real world. You'd you'd just be interrupting your running too much. And so that's where we came up with the idea for Zombies Run, which is an audio-only game that uses only your speed and your distance as an input. So it's a very, very simple game, but uh, it's one that um, fits the, the, uh, the shape of running as an activity really well. And so the point of that chapter really is to highlight the fact that every single activity is different, right? Uh, running is very different from mobbing. In fact, running is very different from cycling or from walking. And so if you want to make a game that makes these things more fun, you cannot simply take the running game and just transpose it to cycling. It's not really going to work. Um, But a lot of game designers or a lot of companies are just too lazy, so they just can't be bothered doing that. Um, And they'd rather rather just go use the same game design. So that's a problem that we have, I think.
1: Yeah. I was also wondering if it it could help somehow, because uh, I was thinking about your uh, mopping argument, so to speak, whether this kind of rebranding, calling this very specific activity as a form of so-called Zen game, would that be a kind of solution for exactly this, this specific problem, or am I aiming in the wrong direction here?
0: Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I I would need to sort of understand what a Zen game is a bit more. Um, if you mean by sort of being in flow or something, I, yeah. I guess so. But um, I don't know. I, I'm sort of, I, I think flow as a concept is kind of a bit overused. And so mm-hmm. it's, I don't know like how much it tells us about what the game should actually be like. Um, so... But, you know, that, that, that is something that people say they get into when they're running. But, you know, you already sort of get into a state of zen or flow when you, I think you're sort of good at the game. And if you're not good at it, then, then uh, you know, that's a hard part. If, if people actually really like mopping, then you don't need a
1: game to do that. Um, mm, good point. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Now, the uh, gamification of games may sound strange at first to our listeners and even your readers, but in Chapter 5, you do elaborate on exactly that. And I may quote, As video games have come to dominate the entertainment industry, companies are refining and repurposing game design concepts like achievements, trading cards, and loot boxes in order to maximize engagement and profit. Even at the cost of enjoyment.
0: Yeah, so, um, you know, even as companies have adopted ideas from uh, the video games industry, like achievements and missions, the video game industry is reintroducing those ideas back. But, you know, video games are all, you know, good video games are already fun. Right, so if you're playing, you know, Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, or you're playing Civilization, you don't really doesn't really seem like it makes any sense that those games need to be more fun. Yeah, but um, essentially, you know, what we're seeing is um, a lot of games using gamification in order to grow profit, um, and sometimes that's done directly, and sometimes that's done indirectly. So, uh, in terms of direct uh, increase of profit, you'll see games use loot boxes, um, or or um, in-app purchases uh, to um, basically to, to sort of get people used to uh, paying more money. Yeah. Um, so they might go and. Uh, encourage people to collect sets of armor or they might make certain um, parts of the game so difficult or so tedious that um, you really need to go and buy extra equipment in order to complete it or to skip the grind. And so um, I'd argue that that is a place where video games are essentially... um, using gamification, using progress bars, using kind of like grindy missions, that sort of thing, to try and just make more money. Mm-hmm. But I think it also happens indirectly, where you have games that are just incredibly long. Um, well, games are already quite fun, so like Assassin's Creed is an example I use a lot. Where like, I, I quite like Assassin's Creed, um, but I stopped playing it some time ago because the games just got so long actually that, you know, they used to be 20 hours long, and Now they're 80 hours long. Yeah. Oh <laughs> but the extra, gosh, yeah. Hours, yeah, yes. the extra 60 hours, yeah, it's just 60 hours. And obviously really like super fun for me. They're just like doing like, um, sort of grindy quests, go you and know, collect resources or, or walking around the place. Some people find that fun. It is true, but I, it, it is not terribly fun for me. Um, And they're basically padding out their content with, again, essentially gamification, you know, just extra achievements, extra items to collect, extra missions to complete, um, in order to lengthen the gameplay time. And it is useful for companies to, to be able to talk about having a longer gameplay time because gamers think still that a longer game is better than a shorter game. They do, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good sale. It's a good marketing technique. If you go and say, "Well, Assassin's Creed Fifteen is eighty hours long," people think, "Wow, that's Hmm. really good value." Then you know, like I'm getting more value out of that game than a game that's seven hours long or twenty hours long. Um, Obviously, that's just absolutely absurd. I mean, is a is a ten hour movie better than a two hour movie? No, <laughs> no one would think that right uh, but but people kind of think that with games for some reason or well, some people think that for games so that's that but that's and, and some of these games also allow you to pay to skip the boring parts of the game so that that is a place where you know a lot of this filters back towards just trying to make more money
1: yeah Chapter 6 addresses gamification in its most authoritative forms, including China's experiments with gamified social credit systems that aim to control citizens' behavior through rewards and punishments. I have to ask you this very bluntly, then, is this so different from what we go through every day without giving it such a name as Social Score now?
0: Well, it depends, Um, you know, it depends where you live, uh, really. Uh, You know, in in some cities in China, um, security cameras will check whether you're jaywalking and government systems will check whether you volunteered um, or returned a book late to the library and they will change your citizen score that will give you more um, rewards or punishments. I'm Mm -hmm. not aware of other countries doing that. Right. Like, yeah. I, I don't think other countries do that. So it's not exactly the same. Um, and so I'm trying to walk a very fine line in the book. I don't want to go and say that all of China is in some sort of dystopian, you know, social credit score, because it's not actually like only a few cities, only you know, maybe a few dozen cities even um, out of hundreds of cities are experimenting with social credit scores, and most of them are not doing it in a very systematic manner. Um, And in most cases, the rewards and punishments are not that severe or Mm -hmm. or that beneficial. At the same time, it is new. Um, People, Governments have not done this on this kind of scale for millions of people and hooked into um, a widespread system of surveillance. So uh, you know, and giving people feedback so quickly. So uh, you know, on the one hand, it is similar to, you know, financial credit scores, to scores that you see used in other cases in, in other countries, but it's a little bit bigger. It's well, in fact, it's a lot broader and it's a lot bigger. And the ambition of the Chinese government is a lot bigger as well. Um, yeah. in, in these experiments.
1: Um, in Chapter 7, you argue that modern conspiracy theories are best compared to ARGs in how they blur the boundaries between the Internet and the real world. Now, let's start with the ARGs, and that's short for augmented reality games, of course. Why is the aforementioned comparison then so fruitful in this particular discussion for you?
0: Well, you know, this this sort of comparison came up to me... Um originally uh, with QAnon, and it was a couple mm-hmm. of years ago where I, of, of course, you know, this was in the lead up to January 6th, you know, riot or yeah. insurrection in the U.S. It was a little bit before that, but QAnon was becoming very popular. And I was reading all these accounts and all these, um, uh, ju- you know, just reports about people who are into QAnon, and they would always say some kind of variation of... I've done my research. You know, the reason why I believe in QAnon is because I've done my research and if you did your research, you would also agree with me. Right. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't kind of arguing on the substance, but people wouldn't go and say, well, well, actually 5G cell towers, you know, do this. They'd say like, if you go and do your research, you would agree with me. And, And I was just very interested by this because I was like, you're not really doing any research. You're just typing QAnon into Google right, that, that's not the same as research, you know? No, um, uh, I did you you, not know. You, you know, um, but it kind of feels like research, right? When people yeah. go and say, I'm going to buy a new microwave, they'll say, like, I'm going to research, you know, my microwaves, I'm going to research holidays, and they type it into Google, and that kind of feels like it's research. And similarly, you know, when people go and, like, research conspiracy theory, they think that they're sort of drop- getting this um, balanced view of the the pros and cons of QAnon and actually what I argue is sort of that they're embarking on something that's similar to an alternate reality game where they are going into this kind of sort of fictional universe online universe of videos and blog posts and you know community trying to figure out you know what the quote-unquote truth is and it's you know, it's a sprawling universe that, on the that would seem like it's just too complicated for anyone to really kind of comprehend, right? So, you know, in a, as opposed to watching Fox News or some TV news network where you just someone's just telling you a bunch of like conspiracy theories, it it would seem like it's actually more difficult to get into a conspiracy theory online than it would be yeah. to just read a book. But actually, my, my argument is it's more fun to. Yeah do it uh, proactively. It's more fun to feel like you are discovering it, that you are doing your research. Um, It feels like you've earned it. And it's more fun to um, talk to strangers and talk to online communities about what you found. So yeah. that is the, the comparison of alternate reality games, which is a genre of game, which is similarly kind of sprawling and similarly takes place over websites and emails and newspapers and phone numbers in the real world. And on the one hand, you say, well, surely alternate reality games are just too complicated to play versus picking up your phone and playing Candy Crush, which is true. Um, they're not as popular, but when people get into it, it is actually kind of fun to play something complicated because you feel like, you, you, you know, you're, you've earned it and mm-hmm. you are, you know, your skills are valued.
1: Yeah. You also explore how financial markets, terrorism, social media, consumerism, and even dating have become gamified and how the picture of the world as game is shaping our very behavior, right?
0: Yeah, so you know, um, you know, a lot of uh, applications and a lot of parts of our world have be- are becoming explicitly gamified. So if you uh, use a lot of financial trading apps, if you you know use social media, you will see things that look very much like uh, gamification. You know, with points and favorites and retweets numbers and, and that sort of thing, um, and you'll see loyalty. Um, programs and frequent flyer miles, and people treat these like games, you know. And I'm not just saying that. If if you look at people discussing uh, how they try and maximize air miles, they will talk about it as if it were a video game. And this is where um, the lines are being kind of blurred a bit, because sometimes these apps are not being designed explicitly with gamification. I mean, sometimes there are. But people are treating them like they are games, but people are treating social media like it's a game and people treat politics like it's a game mm. and financial markets as well. You know, they just want to see the line go up and they want to see their score go up. And I think people, you know, like I've seen some people say, well, that's not new. And it's like, I, I guess it's not new. Um, people have already ta- always talked about, you know, war as a game and, and things like that. But it has become the dominant metaphor um, in how we believe the world works right and so so you'll see people talking about npcs oh you're just an npc you're a non-player character i don't need to like think about what you think yeah um people talk about you know oh this person's op overpowered you know Mm -hmm. um this person is using hacks this person's cheating you know it's not fair that it's not a level level playing field and so it is it's a it's a weird place where um you know, it's a kind of like a feedback loop where people are treating treating the world like a game, but also the world kind of is designed like a game. Um, you know, more yeah. parts of the world are designed like games, uh, so it's not it's not so sort of conspiratorial to think that way. Um, and there are some good aspects of that, actually. Uh, you know, I argue that that um, you know there are good games, and so there are good ways in which to think of the world as a game. Um, you know, in terms of cooperation and teamwork, but of course there are there are bad you know bad behaviors in games, and that's something, something we've got to uh, to be aware of.
1: Yeah, and this this makes me think. I recently stumbled across um, an elder business presentation uh, from from colleagues of mine, and they were talking about uh, what what can they do to to achieve success in a specific project, and they were talking about. Uh, we have the tools, you know, and we can bring in uh, some extra manpower to the table. And they were referring to the, to these assets as perks because you were using perks, getting perks in, uh, of course, Call of Duty: Modern Warfare. And this this is re- this really struck my mind, right? This is exactly what you just were talking about, as we as you were mentioning, in NPCs or overpowered. The, these expressions and terms they have entered our everyday language, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I, I think that people, uh, you know, it's not surprising, you know, if you if you spend like five hours a day or eight hours a day playing video games with your friends, and you all know what perks mean, and you all know what NPCs mean, of course, you're going to use those terms, um, when talking about other other concepts.
1: Yeah. Finally, then, you take a look also at augmented reality and how it enables the gamification of every moment in our lives. Please guide us through your findings here.
0: Yeah, so um, I think the reason why gamification has spread uh, so rapidly in the last 15 years is because of smartphones, because of the internet, because of sensors. We now have a computer, a network connected computer that we carry with us pretty much every minute of our waking lives, okay? Some people don't use phones that much, but most people do. And so that has enabled uh, gamification to seep into more aspects. If you went back 30 years ago, you couldn't really gamify like walking or running as much because we just didn't have the sensors to track how fast and how far you'd run. Certainly not in a way that would compare your your, um, performance to other people's performance. But now, of course, we have internet-connected smartphones with GPS tracking. Now, that said, there's still a lot of things that smartphones cannot track, right? Smartphones cannot look at what you're looking at. They can't really see what you're doing most of the time. My argument is that augmented reality displays um, accomplish two things. Firstly, they are are able to see what we see. So if you're walking down the street and you pick up a piece of litter and you put it in a bin, they can see that you've done that. Your phone cannot, right? They can do that automatically. You can tell your phone you did that, but that's just annoying because you you have to open up a litter picking app. No one wants to do that, right? So it's able to see that. But at the same time, it's also able to provide feedback to you because it's a display. So it's a camera and it's a display at the same time. And that enables the gamification of more or less everything, right? Uh, anything you can see, you can now gamify. So, like I say, you could gamify picking up litter, you could gamify graffitiing, you could gamify um, you know, conversations. You could gamify anything you want, and so the surface area of activities and the world that could be gamified um, just expands massively um, with heads-up displays. And um, that's obviously scary <laughs> because you could do that in bad ways. You know, if you watch Black Mirror, well, that looks scary. It's yeah. also exciting because you you could then gamify mopping. And that makes mopping more fun. Hmm. Um, and I think this is a it's it's a weird situation where a lot of tech companies are obviously pouring billions of dollars a year into augmented reality and virtual reality. You know, that is what Facebook, you know, Meta is doing, Apple is doing it, Microsoft are doing it. And so I think a lot of people are a little bit like cynical and skeptical about augmented reality, which makes sense because we keep on being told it's around the corner and it never seems to arrive. Yeah but when it does arrive, it's going to make the changes that have come with the internet and smartphone look like nothing at all. Hmm. And gamification is going to be a big part of that. So um, it's it, it's a sort of, it, it's a red flag for me. It's a warning signal that, that that we need to get serious about this stuff before it appears, because otherwise in 10 years time or 15 years time, people will be wringing their hands saying, how, how do we not see this? And they say, you know, of course, we of course we should have expected it. It's pretty obvious, um, but uh, but I I think for some reason people underestimate the, the spread and the power of gamification or or the the way in which gamification is used to to try and manipulate behavior.
1: Yeah. Well, Adrian, we have taken a lot of your time. Please uh, tell us now what are you working on right now, and of course, what will you be playing next? Maybe
0: so um i am taking a bit of a break (laughs) from writing uh because it's been quite a lot of work uh doing the book and then doing a lot of promotion around it i've been doing a lot of essays and things uh related to the book uh but um you know i'm still doing writing i still write a column for edge every month about about games and about the games industry and Mm -hmm. um and i'm looking forward to to doing more there you know, uh, I am very interested in augmented reality. Um, I think that's probably apparent. So, so I'm thinking about whether I should write something around that. Then again, I do like writing fiction, so maybe I'll write some, some you know, fiction next. I'll write a novel next. I'm not sure. Um, what what I'm playing next? Uh, I need to finish, uh, immortality, which is a game by Sam Barlow kind of really interesting sort of uh, full you know, um, a full motion video FMV game, uh, mystery game, and also I need to finish The Case of the Golden Idol. So those are the two things that, that I'm, I'm playing.
1: So lots to do. Never gets boring. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. So uh, take care and goodbye. Great to be here. Thank you. So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of game studies, game research yourself, and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me. To get in touch, please send me a message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. Take care and goodbye.